0: The last time we talked, we've been talking for several weeks now, actually a month or so now, about this very simple basic concept that God loves you. Not God loves us, God loves you personally. We spent some time talking about the fact that it's the foundation of everything that we do, is the revelation that God loves us. That, that, that everything God asks us to do and requires of us, everything we're supposed to do, is a response to the revelation, the realization that God loves us. We're commanded to love one another, but we're commanded to love one another with the love that God has loved us with. And we've talked about the fact that you can't give something you haven't received, and you'll give it the way you receive it. And so we've got to, we've got to grow in this revelation that God loves you. It takes care of fear. We're living in very fearful times. But what will drive out fear? this says in First John is the is the revelation of of God's perfect love for you, His matured love, His love maturing in you, for you and through you, will drive out, cast out fear, and and it will it will it will it will change. It's what changes you, is that revelation of how much God loves us. And there there are some Christians, many Christians, I believe in fact, that really don't have that revelation yet, and there are others that have had it but have kind of lost touch with it, as we go about our daily work and and just are living our lives and. Uh, and then also doing what God's called us to do in whatever that capacity that is, we, we just lose touch with the fact that God loves us. And and especially if you're not spending time in the Word every day, you need to spend time in the Word every day. You need to spend time with Him. This God's not man at you. This God loves you. This God that wants to teach you and instruct you, this God may even correct you. We may talk about that down the road. He's a God that loves you. The God that will ultimately stand before and receive a judgment for. Judgment, if you're a Christian, not for hell or heaven, but a, a judgment for rewards. That's a God that loves you. But he's also a God of truth and righteousness and justice. But he loves you. And this is where I think so much of the church has lost touch, that God loves us. So we've been looking at that, and we're really not just looking at the fact that God loves us. Our key scripture, we're not going to start there today for the sake of time, but is the scripture John three sixteen? For God so loved the world... And we're talking about the fact that that verse is not just telling us that God loves us, that verse is talking about how much God loves us. We went to Romans 5, and we saw that God demonstrates his love, not just did it once. He continues to demonstrate his love for us, and that his son died for us when we were yet sinners, and while it goes on to say we were enemies of God. So we had nothing about us that was worthy of being loved. And then we began to look at this kind of love, 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Behold, look, wow, what what strange kind of love this is that God has, there it is, behold what manner of love. And we talked about the fact that that word manner of love in Greek means what foreign type. It's strange to us. It's not common in this world. It's as if we've gone to another country and we're experiencing another culture, and that love of God is like another culture in a sense. It's like another language. And so everything we know about love and grew up knowing about love as, as in our childhood, you can't use that to understand what this love is like because it's so far beyond this love. And that's what we've talked about. And then we went last time, and this is where we're going. They take it to Romans chapter 8? Good. I haven't gone there yet. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read through this. We did this last time and we started to go through this and I want to continue this and from this we're going to begin to look at other aspects. It's still talking about God. This is God's heart towards us. Romans chapter eight is such a, in fact, if there were only one chapter I could have out of the Bible, it would be Romans chapter eight. In fact, I know, I've learned most of it by heart, not because I sat down to memorize it. I just lived in it for so long. I recited it to myself for so long that, that in the, in the, the the challenge that I have sometimes is the Bible I was using then was, was a new American standard. So sometimes when I'm reading it here, NASB comes out of my mouth instead of the New King James because that's just, I've spent so much time in it. But that's because it's that critical. It's, it's the heart of the gospel of what God's done to us, for us. And so as he's, finishing up with this, there's this crescendo that's building up, and I believe it's just welling up in the, in, in the, in the Apostle Paul as he's writing this out, as he goes through those first, those first 27, 28 verses, talking about what God has done for us, how he's rescued us, redeemed us. He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and he didn't stop there because the Spirit of God has been given to us to continue to do in us for us, what we can 't do for ourselves, which is why verse twenty six says and won 't be up there verse twenty six says likewise, when we, the spirit of God helps us when we don 't know how to pray, so it 's the first twenty five verses are talking about what the Spirit of God has done for us, that we cannot do for ourselves. And Paul's just marveling in this 26 talks about in 27 and 28 talk about prayer and that Spirit of God is in us to help us because we don't know what to pray. We don't know the what literally to pray, but he's in us interceding with us and for us and helping us. And then the famous verse 28 that so many people quote so many times for we know that that, that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And we pull that out of context and we hold out to that in difficult times. And I believe we can, but Paul's talking about God is working in our lives for our benefit. All things work together for good. That doesn't mean everything that happens in your life is, is good or even for your good. There's a whole section of the body of Christ out there that believes the sovereignty of God means that whatever happens to you, God did, and it's God's will. And so as good Christians, we need just to accept it and learn out of it what God wants to say. I just believe that's just totally unscriptural. I respect those people, but I believe it's totally unscriptural because it totally... Jesus didn't function that way. Jesus didn't just accept whatever happened. People came to him with sickness and disease, with blindness and deformity, and he didn't say, well, I guess that that's where you are. That must be God's will for you, you know. That's what sovereign God... No, and they brought it to him and asked him for deliverance. He set them free and delivered them every time. Every time. That thinking and teaching does not account for the devil. It doesn't, it it throws all of Genesis chapter 3 out because Genesis chapter 3 says God, what God created in 1 and 2, man surrendered to a devil. There is a devil, you know. Maybe these people know it. There is a devil, you know. Now, the way I was raised, we kind of laughed at that concept. Well, ha ha ha, that's not very smart. I mean, now that we're intelligent and smart, we realize there is no such thing as the devil. No, that's stupid. That word in Greek means stupid. (laughs) I mean, it's just ignorant that there's no... We live in a spiritual... There's a spiritual realm behind this natural realm. And there is... Genesis 3 says, Adam surrendered this world, this realm, this natural realm into the hands of God's enemy, Satan. And Jesus acknowledged that because when he was tempted by him... And I don't want to go off on that. We may do that another time. And so, so th- th- this is that teaching just ignores the fact that we live in a we live in a world that's that's under the control of the god of this world. Second Corinthians four four says Satan is the god of this world for now. So the things that are going on in this world you can't attribute to God; it attributes to the god that's of this world. That's why the church is here to to rescue people out of this world and to eventually set the stage for God to bring His kingdom. Back to this earth. Okay. So, I don't know how I got off on that. It was your fault. You got me off on that, so. Okay. So, what, so Paul, so, oh, all things work together for good. No, what God, what that's talking about is in the context of Romans chapter 8, God has built things for our lives so that He can work things in our lives for our good. So, God's working in us. The, The working that God has in us is for our good. For those who love Him, and who are called according to his purpose. And that leads into the verse that now we're now going to talk about. He's talking about those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, don't get hung up on that word, that just means planned ahead of time for, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what that verse is saying is whom he, planned, he whom he knew ahead of time, so whom he saw from before he created the universe, which is all of us, He pre-planned that we would be conformed, that means changed, into the image of His Son, Jesus. So that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. We talked about last time, is that God's plan of salvation is so far beyond what the church has basically taught, which is is that, that salvation means we don't have to go to hell, and we get to go to heaven. And if that's all it meant, sign me up. I'll be eternally grateful that I don't have to go to hell, and I get to get into heaven. But the word salvation in Greek is sozio, which means so much more. See, that idea is thinking of a small God. And this is one of the problems that church has had, including us and me, is we see God as too small. We see God as not generous. We see God as for not for who he really is. And so we think all he thinks of in terms of not going to hell and going to heaven. And God is thinking has much bigger plans for you than just that you get to heaven. He is, wants to bless you now. And when you hear the word blessing, don't think money. That's some of that's involved. But it's far more than that. His plan for you and me is that we might be conformed to the image of His Son, so that His Son might not just be His only begotten Son anymore, but He might now be the firstborn of many brethren. So what God was doing when He sent Christ to the cross for us, was to open not just heaven to us, but to open His inner circle of His family to us. That we would now not just be rescued out of hell, and opened into heaven, but we would literally become sons and daughters of the living God just as Jesus is a son of the living God. I've mentioned this to you before. Hebrews 2 says that because we, he, He is not ashamed to be called our brother, Jesus. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you if you're in Christ. You may be ashamed of you, but he's not ashamed to call you his brother. That's part of the family. That means you're a joint heir with Christ, Romans 8 goes on to say, or says before this. We're joint heirs with him. John 17, Jesus prays, Father, that they may know that you love them as you love me. He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. So what God's plan was not just to save us from hell, to get us into heaven, but was literally to transform us so that we might become His sons and daughters just as much as Jesus is. I don't know how we can sit still if we see that. I don't know how we are sitting quietly in church when we see that. How can we not just break out in praise and thanksgiving and joy for God's generosity to us? And it's all out of His love for us. And this is what we're talking about. So God's working things in your life for your good because He loves you because He's a good, good Father. All right. You better go on. Verse 30. Moreover, He predestined or preplanned that these, that these also whom He predestined and planned, He also called. So how many of you are in Christ? God's watching. Okay. You got there because He called you. You answered the call, but He called you. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless He draws them. So you're in the family of God because He called you. So what He's talking about here is you. Because he whom He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, those He called. So if He's called you, He's pre-planned to conform you to the image of His Son. And whom He called... He justified. That means made right in His sight. And when He justified, He also glorified. Verse 31. This is what we're talking about. What shall we say to these things? I mean, Paul's referring... And he's not just sitting in a jail cell dictating theology here. Paul's come through the first eight eight and three quarters chapters. And of course, he didn't write it in chapters. This is a letter he wrote to the Romans to explain to them... What the gospel is—it's the purest explanation of the gospel. Because all the other letters were sent to either encourage some some member of his team or to correct some church that he started. This is written to a church he'd never been to yet. What shall we say to these things? The summation of all that he says from Genesis from Romans one one up to Romans eight thirty verse thirty. What shall we say to these things? The summation of all of these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? The summation of these things is the evidence and demonstration of how, for us, God is, and that's what we're talking about now. Because we're not just talking about the idea that God loves us. We're not just talking about the idea. See, because we. So, because I think the concept that so much of people Christians have, yeah, God loves me, but He's sitting in heaven. Loving me with an emotion. It's like when we see somebody in church and say, How you do?" I love you brother, I love you too. and go on. And we're not we didn't think of him before we saw him, and we don't think of him after we saw him. But we're expressing a sincere emotion of the moment. Understand? But we do that with God. We think that's what God does with us. So that when you're not in intimate fellowship or intimate worship with him, God's not thinking about us. But we've got to kind of get his attention. Hello! That's, what, that's why we raise our hands, isn't it? To get His attention? No. <laughs> you already have God's attention. He's watching over you while you sleep. He's waiting anxiously, and I don't mean in a worried way. He's waiting for the moment you open your eyes, hoping you're going to talk to Him. God? God? God is waiting for me to talk to Him. Why do you think? Why do you think He didn't just save you and said, "Okay, you don't have to go to hell now. You can go to heaven." Why did He do this? Why did God create man in the beginning? He didn't need Him. God's not lonely. God doesn't need anything. But He created man so that He could have an f- intimate, close relationship with another, with a being that would love Him and adore Him and be in a love relationship with Him, and receive His blessing and His bounty and His goodness. God, What was the name of the place that God created for them? Anybody remember? Eden. You know what that word means? In Hebrew, place of overwhelming delight. He made a garden for them of wonderful, delightful things to enjoy. And some translations say He commanded them to enjoy it. God wanted them to enjoy it. The only thing is there was one tree they couldn't eat of. That was a reminder that they don't own anything. It's all a gift. They're stewards of it. Well, God hasn't changed. The God created the garden. The God created this man and woman and put them in this place. The God that created all of the nature around them to bless them and all of the... He, he has, He's not different today. He's not upset and mad because all this violence is going on in the world. God's not looking out there, looking down at you and down at me and down at the church at all our failures and weaknesses and and withdrawing his love for us. God still loves you. He's still the same. All through the night while you're sleeping, he's watching over you, waiting for the moment you open your eyes, hoping when you open your eyes that you'll look towards him, that you'll open your eyes and say, good morning, Lord, that you'll acknowledge him. And if you don't do that, God's not sitting pouting. Well, they didn't talk to me first thing in the morning, so I don't go talk to them. See if I, they, see if they find out how much they need me. Wait till, wait till they get in trouble. I'll show them what it's like to not listen. That may be what we would do, but God is love. God is love. God is love. So what we're looking at is we're looking at the emotion that... Com- that's the better word. Thank you, Lord. Not the emotion. We're looking at the commitment that's behind His love for us. We're looking at the commitment from Him and the attitude that He has towards us because it affects everything we do with Him. If we think we got to get up in the morning and get His attention, then once you've got His attention, you've got to talk Him in to being to listening to you and to, 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 most of us think prayer is talking God into doing something that we need Him to do and what prayer really is is God having to talk us <laughs> and to listen to Him to accept what He's already done for us I'm just going to lay this out there I don't have time to explain it but God's already done everything for you he's, he, he can do or ever will do say so then we're in trouble no the problem is we don't believe he's done it for us yet. It's on our end. It's never on his end. So we're looking at what does this mean that God is for us? Those of you that are sports fans, you know, you have different teams that you're for. And, and some some of you are are, are, are are radically for your team. So you'll wear sweatshirts with your favorite player's name on the back. You know, you go to a game and you look like idiots. <clears throat> because you're for that team or for that player. And everybody, nobody, ever, nobody there looks at you and says, whoa, you're weird. Because they know you're a fan. Fan is just short for fanatic. It is. And so in this, this election year, or maybe not so much this year, but you know, we have, we have candidates that we're for. And some people say, well, I guess I'm more for this one than that one. Other people wear, again, shirts and stickers and buttons and things like that. They give money. They give their time. They're more for that candidate than the person that says, I guess I'm for him." So you can't tell by the word F-O-R what's behind it. So God is, is showing us by his word, by what he's done for us, how much for us he is. Last time I read, and we put it up, we're not going to put it up today, but I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to go through this. We're going to break down what this means to be for us. And this is a quote from a, a, a commentary by Matthew Henry. The ground for the challenge is God's of God's being for us. The ground for this challenge is God being for us. In this he sums up all our privileges. This includes all that God is for us, not only reconcile. He not only he not, not only reconciled to us and is not against us. So it's not that He's just not against us. He's for us. Some of you are not against either candidate, but you're not for Him. You may not even decide to vote. We'll talk about that some other time. But He's in covenant with us. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He's so engaged for us That all of his attributes are for us. We're going to talk about that this morning. His promises are for us. All that he is, think about that. All that he has, think about that. All that he does is directed for his people. He performs all things for them. Stop a second. You've heard of laser beams? They do now eye surgery. amazing what they can do with laser beams. The delicate surgery on, on an eye. My mother is, is, is 92. When she moved down here with us, she was, took, I took her to an eye doctor. She didn't see one in a long time. And he said, oh, my gosh, we've got to do something right away because there's a condition that if I, don't, if I don't do this procedure, she may go blind. They said, what is it? He said, i got to poke a hole in one part of her eye to connect to another part. I said, how are you going to do that? He said, with a tiny laser beam. So I took her to the to the surgery. She, she, she went in and she came out in 10 minutes. And I said, uh-oh, she did something wrong. <laughs> and he, he said, no, oh, no, it's over. I said, how can, how can you have done it? He said, because this laser is so precise. And some of you had things done in your eyes with laser, even LASIK surgery and things like that are done with it. It's amazing. But they can hit the moon with it? They can cut through all kinds of things. What is laser? And I don't know all the technical details. But from what I understand, what it is, is it's taking all the random light and it's 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 focusing it in a single wave, something basic like that. So it's taking random, there's random light waves in this room right now. That's how you can see me and I can see you. But if you take all that light and you, you conform it to wave and it's going the same wave and focus its energy together, it is extremely powerful. So it's taking this kind of random light and focusing it down on this eyeball. And what I've just read is saying the same thing. All of God's power, all of God's ability, all of God's attributes, He'll focus in on you. Think of that. Think of what God can do. The power that raised raised Christ from the dead, Ephesians 1 says... The power that created the universe, Hebrews 11 talks about, this same power, this same ability Romans, or Ephesians 1 says, is directed for you. Oh, you're not getting it. <laughs> this is why it takes revelation. All of God's power, all of God's ability, is focused. For your benefit. That's what for us means. Otherwise, he's not fully for... See, God doesn't do things halfway. We do. But God doesn't do things halfway. God's not a little for you today and not so for you tomorrow. God is all out for you. He's proven it. We're going to see that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, Lord. Thank you. Okay. He performs all things for them. That's us. He is for them, for us, even when he seems to act against us. And if so, if this is true, who can then possibly be against us so as to prevail against us? So as to hinder our happiness? Be they ever so great and ever so strong, ever so many, ever so mighty, ever so malicious, what can these problems do to us? While God is for us and we keep in his love, we may with a holy boldness defy all the powers of darkness. Let Satan do his work, worst, he's chained. Let the world do its worst, it's conquered. Principalities and powers are spoiled and disarmed and triumphed over in the cross of Christ. Who then dares fight against us while God himself is fighting for us? And this we say to these things, this is the inference which we may draw from this verse. Wow. Wow. Uh, while I'm reading that, I'm remembering a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 where Jehoshaphat is a godly king, wakes up one day and finds the report from his, 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 his intelligence organization that they're in trouble because there's three armies bearing down on them. And, and, and they're overwhelmed. And so he says he's afraid, he said he feared. So that first reaction of fear is normal when you're threatened. It's what you do with it that's important. And instead of reacting to the fear, he said, let's go find out what God says to do in this situation. So they declared a fast and they spent a day fasting and they stopped all their activities and they just went and sought God of what they should do. And when this was finished, a man spoke up and God spoke through him and said that what you're to do is you're to go out to the edge of the valley where they're going to gather tomorrow And you're to put your worship team out in front. And the chorus they're going to sing is not too hard to remember. We don't need to put it on screens. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. And he said, and here's what I want you to do. I want you, the rest of the nation, your army, to gather behind your worship team and you're to set yourself, stand still, and see the deliverance of the Lord. For the Lord will fight for you. For the Lord will fight for you. For the Lord will fight for you. For the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. The battle went on for three days. No, battle went on for that day. And the Spirit of God caused confusion among the three armies, so they destroyed themselves. And then when the battle was over, the children of Israel went in and cleaned up the spoils of war. And the only injury they could have possibly endured is if they cut themselves, picking up the spoils. 1 Samuel 17 young boy, David, comes out to the battle scene where his brother, three older brothers are, are in battle and he comes and sees this shocking thing because he sees the Philistines on one side of the valley and the Israelite army on the other side of the valley. And then as, as the morning progresses, he sees this giant come out from the Philistine. His name's Goliath. And he comes out and he taunts the army. And he taunts what he calls the army of Saul, and they go back and they go afraid and they hide. And David finds out he's been doing this twice a day for 40 days. That's 80 times they've heard this. And so you've got the professional soldiers running back in fear, hiding. And David says to his brothers and to the soldiers, What's going on here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That he should defy the army of the living God, not the army of Saul, Saul. Saul's soldiers and Goliath saw them as the soldiers that belonged to Saul. David, who knew his God, David who had wrote the twenty-third psalm, David knew what his God knew. His God was for him. Says, "Who is this uncircumcised Philistine?" That word means, "Who is this Philistine that God's not for? That has no covenant with God." That God hasn't predestined, that God hasn't called. Who is this guy? I don't care if he's 10 feet, 12 feet high. Who is he? That he should defy the army that belongs to the living God who's for and in covenant with it. So you know the story. He goes out to challenge this giant. And the giant just ridicules him. He says, you come out to me with sticks and stones? And David says, No. I come out to you in the name of the Lord. (laughs) And before we're done, I'm going to have your head in my hand. And then at the end, he says for this reason, so that the world will know there's a God in Israel. The world will know there's a God that's for Israel, and he still is today by the way. And that this assembly The Israeli soldiers will know that the battle is not theirs, but the battle belongs to God and we don't fight with swords and shields, but we fight with the name of the Lord. God was for Israel. He still is. God is for us. So who can be against us? That's not just talking about who can not like us and proceed. Who can have, who, who can, who can overcome? And we're going to go on and read that we're more than conquerors through Christ who conquered. Okay, now, here's what I want to do. Let's now go to my favorite verse in the Bible. It's verse 32. Now, excuse me, I'm going to, we're not ready to go there. I want to, I've, got some, I've got some slides I want to show you. Don't put them up yet. You can put the first one up. I want to break this down. They've got to set this up. I want to break down what we just talked about. Ways that God is for us. This is a breakdown of what I just read for you. You're the first one. He's reconciled us to himself. That means he's restored anything. Any, he has no issues with you. He's restored us into a right relationship with him. He's not mad at us. Number two, he's in covenant with us. We don't have time to get into all that means. A covenant is a commitment where you give yourself. And the covenant he's in with us is called in the Bible a blood covenant. And what that means is in a blood covenant, you pledge everything, you pledge your life to one another. Marriage is based on a blood covenant. It's a total giving of yourself forever, of all that you are, all that you have. It's a combining together as one in a union, and that's what God has entered into with us. That's what King David was saying that Goliath didn't have. Number three, all of his attributes, attributes are his qualities, omniscience, he knows everything. Omnipotence. He can do everything. All of His attributes, everything God is, is directed towards us like a laser beam. Number four. All of His promises are directed towards us. If you find a promise in the Bible, it's directed towards you. If you find a promise in the Bible, it's directed towards you. Personally, towards you. It's as if I was reading something this week. It says, when you find a promise in the Bible, it's a word spoken to you. It's as if God appeared to you and made this promise to you personally. <clears throat> Number five. All that he is, is directed towards us. Every, we use the expression, every fiber of his being. And notice the similarity, they're directed towards us. Is directed towards. And it's all is directed towards us. All is directed towards us. All is directed towards us. All that He is. Is directed towards us. Number six. All that He has. That's pretty good. Is directed towards us. Is directed towards us. And number seven. All that He does. Is directed towards us. It's for our benefit. It's for our benefit. I shared this with you a few weeks ago. God doesn't have to do anything except, of course, fulfill His promises. But when God was creating the universe, God didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to create it. He didn't have to create us. That means if He created you, it's because He wanted you. You didn't talk Him into it. You're not here because your parents did anything. Your life, they did something... But your life, God's gift of your life came through them. They didn't give you life; God gave you life through them. That means God decided He wanted you. Your parents may not have, but He decided He wanted you. Everything He has is directed towards you and towards me. All right, I want to break this down now because I want to look at this, and we may not finish. We may not finish this today or this subject. I want to go through. in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to his people. In Genesis 1 and 2, they did, God didn't reveal himself because they could see him. God came down and walked in the cool of the garden just as he was. And they could see him just as he is in all his glory. And he could see them just as they was. There were, not, not were nothing nothing were. Nothing was hidden. But when they sinned, when sin came in, what did they do? They ran and they hid from God's presence. And man's been hiding from his presence ever since then. And all of the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3.15, where God revealed the plan of redemption, all the way through to the end of, 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 of Revelation, is God's process of revealing himself to man the way they already knew him just by looking at him in Genesis 1 and 2. So it's a progressive, ongoing, increasing revelation of God of himself to man. So in the Old Testament, this begins, and there are, there are a number of situations where God revealed aspects of him, and then in that process, different men, we're going to go through it, seeing what they saw about God, gave him a name which God had given to them, and it revealed something about him. The first thing, so we're going to start here, don't put anything up yet. We call these God's covenant names. There are a number of names that God uses in the Bible to describe different aspects there's no, nothing that describes God in his fullness because we can't begin to encapsulate God's fullness in any name but there are different aspects of God that are described by his name. One of the names in Genesis, we're not going to turn there, but in Exodus chapter six, Jesus, well yeah God is revealing to Abraham to Moses what he's about to do He says, "I'm going to send you back there and, and tell them that I've sent you." And he said, up until this time, I revealed myself to the patriarchs as, as God Almighty. That actually is El Shaddai. And that word has many different aspects to its meaning. But basically what it means the God who is more than enough to provide everything that you need. So I have revealed my name to them as the God who will take care of you. But I'm going to reveal myself to you now by a different name. And that different name is Yahweh in the Hebrew. In the English it's Jehovah. And that name, you'll see it in your Bible if you turn to that verse, it says Lord. But in the Old Testament, most of the times when you see Lord, it is Yahweh. And that word in Hebrew means the self-existent one. When God says, when Moses said, well, who who shall I say sent me? Just tell him I am. I am what? No, I am. Well, I am who? I am. I am that I am. I just am. To add anything else is to limit me. I just M. So what we're going to see is we're going to see seven names in the Old Testament that are hyphenated with Jehovah that tells us different aspects of what he is. And I'm going through these because they reveal different aspects of how God was for Israel and how much more he's for us. Okay. The first one we're going to look at is you can put it up it's, hit the first one. If you can't read it, it's Jehovah Jireh. And that means the Lord our provision. I've given you the references. It's Genesis 22 verse 14. This is when, when Moses, when God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And, and, and then his son is doing inventory as they're going up the mountain. And he says, dad, I, I see the, I see the wood for the, for the sacrifice. And I I see the, I see the coals of fire to burn the offering. But dad, there's something missing here. Where's the animal for the sacrifice? Now, God's already told Abraham to offer his son, whom God gave him. And we don't have time to go through all of that. God gave him to him, and now God's saying, I want you to sacrifice him. Sacrifice doesn't mean send him to college with some money. (laughs) Sacrifice means you build a fire, you tie him up, and you lay him on top of the fire, you drive a knife down into his heart, and then you set the whole thing on fire. son and all. And Abraham looks at his son and says, don't worry, God will provide himself the ram for the sacrifice. God will pro- God will provide himself the ram for the sacrifice. And of course, you know the story he got him literally the point where he's ready to drive the knife down and God, an angel speaks and says, Stop. He said, Now I know that you truly reverence me, that you truly trust me. We don't have time to go into all that's behind that. Because if you read in Hebrews, Abraham's faith is that even if he drove the knife down there, God would raise him from the dead because God had promised that through that boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. But he's willing to drive a knife into him trusting God that much. And God says, Now that I know that you reverence me that much, He said, and, and then all, he said, don't, don't do that. And then next thing you know, he hears a noise and there's a ram caught in the thicket. I heard it preach this way. While Isaac and Abraham were going up one side of the mountain, there was a ram going up the other. So God's provision was coming up the other side and he couldn't see it at the time. And Abraham was overwhelmed with God's love and generosity and provision. And he named the name of that place Jehovah. Jirah, the Lord, our provision. He had a revelation that God provides for us. We sing that song, but you need to know the background to that song. The next one. Jehovah Nissi, N-I-S-S-I. Our banner or victory. Exodus seventeen fifteen is a story of, of uh, Moses against the Amalekites. They were constant uh, uh, tr- tr- trouble to him. So they're down in a valley, and and Joshua, who was his commander, was fighting the battle. And Moses is up on the hill next to it, and and Moses had his rod. And he discovered as long as he held his rod up, they were victorious. But this fight's going on all day. Have have you ever gotten tired holding your hands up like this? Especially if you're holding a heavy piece of wood. So what happened is his hands would start going down because he'd getting tired. And they discovered as as his hands came down, he got tired. The battle turned against the Israelites. So they figured out quickly, Moses, get your hands up. Then you get tired. So Joshua, Caleb, uh, and they, set, they set some uh, a stone under him and said, okay, sit down, and we're going to help hold your hands up. And that's a great image of the ministry of helps. Helping the one that's in charge, because as they keep going forward, God's able to bring victory. And so as a result, they came to the end of that day, and, the, and through the power of God's deliverance, they were able to defeat the Amalekites, and and so Moses built an altar to recognize this aspect of what God would do for them, and he named the name of that place Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our Banner. So God God's for us; He'll He'll provide what us what we need. God's for us; He will give us victory in and overcoming. The third one, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our Peace. Judges 6 is the story of Gideon. that oh, 's it's a great story. I was going through it again. The, the judges is a story of Israel when they don't have a leader. Uh, up until that point, they've had some kind of leader. They've either had the patriarchs, or they've had Moses, or they've had Joshua. And now they have no leader. What happens is they go through this cycle where they serve God, they begin to prosper, and as they begin to prosper, they stop serving God anymore. They stop going to church, or they go to church, but their heart's far away from God. And what happens is eventually... The Midianites come back through and they just steal all their crops, they take all their possessions, they leave them destitute and now Israel repents again And they said, God, what's wrong? They get their life right with him, and now God begins to bless them, and they go through this cycle over and over again. We hit this story as they've come to one of those bad cycles where the Midianites have just come through. And in this story, with Gideon begins when an angel appears to him under a tree and sees him down in a wine press, down there treading the grapes like that. But it tells us he's not just treading grapes, he's hiding. And the angel addresses him, Oh, mighty man of valor, I have come to, through you to deliver the Israelites. And I kind of get this picture. Gideon looks around, Mighty, who are you talking to? He says, No, it's you. And he says, Well, if it's you, I want to bring a sacrifice. So he goes, He says, Stay here long enough. I want to go bring a sacrifice to you. So he goes makes the typical sacrifice, some meal and some, some bread and some meat, and he puts it on a rock, and the angel Lord takes a staff and goes like this, and the fire to cook, it comes out of the rock. He says, oh, now I know you're the angel of the Lord. And he said, I've chosen you, God's chosen you to deliver your people. And now Gideon's beginning to get afraid, just as often you will if God's called you to do something. And he says, first of all, why, why is all this junk happening to us? If you're If you're really for us, how come all this trouble comes our way? And he doesn't really answer him, although if you read the story, you can tell why. Because he's called, you know, oh, that's a good oh, Lord, thank you. God will call us to do something and, or, or, or show us a promise in his Bible, and we'll want to know why hasn't it been working. And God will oftentimes not tell you why. Because he doesn't want you to focus on why something's not working. He wants you to focus on what he's given you to do or what he's blessed you with. Just like people say, well, how come, you know, I know if God wants to heal people, how, I know so-and-so didn't get healed, and I know this person didn't get healed. Why focus on who didn't get when you can receive what God's... It doesn't change God. Don't focus on somebody's failure. Focus on the success so you can learn from it. And so he's overwhelmed by this responsibility has been given. And so he does some tests, and the angel brings him through these tests. And he says, now I know that God is for me, and he named the name of this place Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. Now, you've got to understand something about the word Shalom, because it's like the word it's like the word salvation in the New Testament. In fact, it's kind of the equivalent of it. The word Shalom does not mean a lack of hostility. It doesn't mean the lack of conflict. That's, that, that's peace. But it means much more than that. Shalom is a blessing. Shalom means salvation, deliverance, perseverance, provision. It means everything you need. Jehovah is our shalom. He is your salvation, your deliverance, your peace. He's force. And this is in the Old Testament. This is in the Old Testament. The next one. Jehovah Racha. Shama, excuse me. The Lord is present. He's with us. He's not just sitting in heaven. That's Ezekiel 48, 35, which is the end of Ezekiel's long revelation of God reestablishing Israel, God establishing His temple, God establishing His presence. And then once God established all this, God comes down to dwell in His temple with His people. See, in the, in the, we just talked about Genesis 1 and 2, God walked with His people. He was present there. His tangible presence was there. Ezekiel, seeing in a vision the restoration of all things, sees God at ending, the crescendo, the, the ultimate the, the ultimate part of it is when God brings his presence down. I may not, oh, I can feel goosebumps. His tangible presence down there. In, in Jesus, God walked among the earth for 33 and a half years in Jesus, and the Word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. But God wasn't satisfied with that. In the end of the book that Pastor Kurt talked about earlier in the service, in the end of the book of Revelation, God's city comes down. We don't have time to talk about that city, but it's an amazing place. And then God comes down to bring His tangible presence to dwell in that city. And I love it. It says, and and there was in you know, the city was not lit by the light, by the sun, or the moon. It was not lit by, you know, it was lit by the glory that comes from the face of God. Wow. Woo! So Ezekiel had a revelation that God's heart is to be present with us. That's his nature, is to be present with his people. Right there with us may feel to you right now, I don't know where God is, just like it did to Gideon, but there was an angel there. God was with us. Jesus told his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send to you a replacement for me, who's not going to just be with you, he's now going to be in you. God is present in you now, if you're a Christian. God is present in you now. His Spirit his, why? So we can commune with Him. We can worship Him, not just in church at the beginning of a service, but we can worship Him and experience Him and know Him. He's present with us. If you're going through a dark time right now, you may not feel His presence, but that doesn't mean He's not present. It just means you don't feel it. Next one, we got to move on. Jehovah canoe, T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U, our righteousness. Jeremiah prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. And he will be called out of a branch, which refers to the Messiah. And he will be the son of righteousness. He will be our righteousness. So Christ is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That he who knew no sin, that's Christ, Jesus, became sin. He took our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So this tells us that God is not only providing for us, God not only gives us victory, God not only gives us peace, God's not just with us, but he's given us his righteousness. Otherwise, there's no way we could be in his presence. You can't be in his presence just by being better than somebody else. You have to be as righteous as he is. So he gave us his righteousness. Number six, Jehovah-Racha, the Lord our shepherd. What does that mean? Well, we know Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is our Racha, the Lord is our shepherd, Jehovah-Racha. We shall not want, because God is a shepherd to us. It's hard for us to understand all that that means, because today we don't use shepherds. But a shepherd lived among his sheep. He was responsible for them. A shepherd took care of the sheep, fed the sheep. A, a shepherd protected the sheep. A shepherd guided the sheep. A shepherd got to know the sheep. He could tell which sheep it was. They named the sheep. They could, they could tell which sheep it was by hearing their bleeding. They could tell Sally's blah from Joe's blah. <laughs> and the sheep... Knew the shepherd's voice. So David, living as a shepherd, began to get a revelation of, through his experiences, of how much God was for us. Not just a God of the, of the, of the, of the, of the, of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Not just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But God was here with him. God was, just as he was being a shepherd to those sheep, God was that shepherd to him. Therefore, I shall not want. I don't, I'm not, He's gonna take care of me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of right, so He leads us into the right path. Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not gonna fear. I don't have to fear whatever happens because the Lord is with me. His rod and His staff will protect me. I love this part. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies because God is my shepherd guiding me. Even with the enemy growling at me, I can sit down at a table and enjoy a meal with my shepherd. Think of that. The enemy's growling at you. He's ready to get at you and destroy you and you can sit down and say, I don't think so. I think I'll have some calamari. I think I'll have some... And number seven, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is our healer. Exodus 15 is when the children of Israel have been delivered out of Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea, and they've seen their enemies destroyed right in front of them. The most powerful army in the world destroyed right in front of them. They go about three days out into the wilderness. Their canteens are dry, and they begin to taste the water that in the stream that's there, and it's bitter. It's not good. It's probably maybe even poisonous. And they start complaining about God right away. God, you brought us out here to die. You brought us out here to this. And the Lord tells Moses to take the rod, touch the, touch the water, and he heals the water, turns the water into sweet water. That that stick, that branch represents the cross, going into the water of sin, and making it life-giving. And he says, "I have a covenant that I'm entering into you, that you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in His sight." He said, I will bless your bread and your water. At later on, he says, and I'll take sickness away from you. Verse fifteen, chapter fifteen, verse twenty-six, for I the Lord am your healer. I will heal your diseases. Chapter twenty-five, he says, I will remove sickness from your midst. Deuteronomy seven fifteen. He renews this with the next generation. If you do these things, if you serve me, if you love me, I will remove, I will remove sickness from your midst and the number of your days I will fulfill. No one will, no one will die early. That's what God promised them. That's part of God's nature. Listen to me. We're talking about God for us. That's part of God being for us. Is that He will heal you. And He did it. Because Isaiah 53 says Himself took our sicknesses and bore our diseases. I know in some most translations says pains and sorrows, but the words literally are sickness and pain and diseases. And Matthew Matthew eight, seventeen confirms that. When Jesus healed people, it said it was to confirm the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53. Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses himself. God's for us, He'll provide for us. He'll be our victory. He is our peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Not the world's peace, my peace I give to you. He is ever present with us. He is our righteousness. He's given us his righteousness. He is our shepherd, our guide, our provider, and he is our healer. God is for you. God's not just sitting in heaven having warm feelings for you. God is actively... I'll prove it to you and we'll end with this. In James chapter 2 it is, and then I think later in chapter 4, James says, how can you say you love one another when you find your neighbor, your, your brother has a need and you just say, be blessed, be warm, and go be filled? And you have the means of meeting their need? He said, that's not love. Well, if God says that to us towards one another then why would God be something different towards us? So whatever your need is this morning, God's for you. He's not just saying, boy, I hope things work out for you. I really hope things work out for you. All that He is, all that He has, all that He's capable of doing is directed towards you, laser-targeted towards you. Say, okay, pastor, if that's true, how come I'm not walking in that? I can tell you one answer. It's not because God isn't doing it. The problem's on our end. We have to believe God's done that before we'll walk in it. Most of us are leaning to our own understanding. Most of us are trying to handle our own problems our way and only including God as a last resort because we don't understand how much God is for us test him prove him see what he'll do for you if you begin to trust him and to step out and watch what god wants to do for you let's pray father we thank you today this requires a revelation from you and you want us to know this about you more than we want to know it i pray for every one of us today father I suspect everyone in this room right now has some need of some kind. It may be physical need. It may be for healing in their body. It may be a financial need. Maybe in their family. It may be for direction. It may be they just feel stuck and they don't know how to move on with you. Whatever that need is, Father, we've learned today from your word that you are for us. Father, we're asking you right now. We take that problem, we take that situation right now and we put it into your hands, Father, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Your word says that we are to be anxious about nothing, but in everything that we are to be anxious about, make our requests be made known unto you with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving because you hear us and you'll answer our prayers. And so we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.